the experience of living in um, another country or visiting another country, even as a tourist, it applies to being a tourist too, but I think the responsibility is greater if you're going to be in a place for longer than a month, if you're trying to stay in a place for a while, is not putting your comfort over your responsibility to contribute to the local economy. Hi friends, welcome to your Best Year Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Dia Yun. I'm an 11-year expat from Beijing, living in the U.S., working on my PhD on Latin America. I am your best year abroad, who empowers you to flourish beyond F1 or H1B, and instead, human better, to belong authentically. I want to normalize the neglected isolation, transition, and identity evolution as a shared human experience, so that border is only where our expansion begins and the bonds never end. Whether you're an international student who just began your adventure, a seasoned expatriate seeking alignment while in transit, or someone who's ready to evoke fulfillment from within. By pressing play, you are listening to your best year abroad, and we walk each other home. Hello, friends, dear listeners. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to another episode of my podcast, Your Best Year Abroad. This episode is actually my very first episode of taping live with a uh, lovely guest on TikTok who I connected uh, via the platform. Uh, so a few days ago, I made a video just about uh, tourists and access behaviors and just some miscommunications that we have with the locals, especially when the prices are different. And that video generated a lot of really rich conversations about the economic and social impact uh, that we now really witness um, in most of the developing countries and some developed countries due to the influx of foreign expats and tourists. So today I'm, uh, I have this very lovely guest um, to join me in this conversation uh, and I really am looking forward to her insights and just to learn more about uh, the situation. So Melissa, I love to ask my guest to introduce himself without their work. So who is Melissa without what you do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'm Melissa. Um, I would say to describe myself without my work, um, I really love spending time with friends. I think it's really, really important to me to um, culturally assimilate in the place that I live, um, be that with language, be that with um, culture. Um, and so it's really important to me to feel like I'm a part of community whether, wherever I am. And so I would say community is definitely in part how I would define myself outside of work um, on top of just like hobbies that I have um, I, I really really love food um, I love trying food I love food that is that is maybe not normal to me uh, but normal to other people and even food that is weird to other people but normal for me um, and so yeah maybe that's a quick little introduction of, of myself sounds really adventurous so what is the most adventurous move you've ever taken in terms of, in terms of food yeah, I would say maybe from from like a Western perspective, um, insects might be something that I've tried that is not something that's very common for people from where I'm from. Um, although I think it's more of just perspective than it is actually something that's that strange. Um, so maybe food, maybe um, certain parts of different animals that aren't super common uh, for me to eat that I've eaten, be that like um, tripe. Um, here in Colombia, it's very commonly known as chunchurria. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I'm very, I very much love it. Um, so yeah, I would say parts of animals that aren't very common are animals that aren't, um, you know, that commonly seen at least in my hometown. Awesome. And what is your cultural upbringing? Yeah. So my mom um, is originally from the U.S. Um, so just normal U.S. I think probably if we were gonna like ancestry.com it European for sure um, <laughs> but to say that I grew up with some sort of influence from Europe no um, and then my dad's side uh, my dad is originally from Canada but both of his parents so my grandma and my grandpa on my paternal side were both what's called Métis so Métis is a sort of Canadian um, word it's originally French that describes mixed-race people and specifically referring to native um, people from Canada. Um, so, you know, the the more indigenous nations of Canada. Um, and so that definitely affected some of the ways that I interacted with my grandparents. But I would say overwhelmingly, my upbringing was what I think most people would understand as white American. Mm, awesome. And currently, you do live in Colombia. You're in Medellin. Can you, can you tell us briefly about that lovely magical story that how you found your new home in Medellin? Yeah, so um, I've been living in Medellin now for about three years and six months. Um, I originally, uh, basically I graduated from college and when I graduated after studying film, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that I didn't feel good about moving to LA and I just did not have the money to think about moving to New York City um, and so I stuck around in Michigan for a bit. Um, I got, I think I was really affected by the way that my peers were economically successful out of university um, and that sort of got in my head um, and was a bit difficult for me, um, especially because I wasn't a salaried employee and I was kind of just freelancing and taking sort of any project that I could get. Um, and so I found myself trying to teach myself the lesson of working at something every day to get to a big goal as opposed to um, just planning big goals and hoping that they would come to fruition. So the first way that I went about that was running a marathon, um, which was not something I had ever really been interested in, but I wanted to put into practice the idea that like, okay, if I run every day, maybe I'll be able to run a marathon, you know, after a certain number of days. Um, <clears throat> and then from there, um, I decided I wanted to try to learn Spanish. So that was a big, a big thing for me. Um, I previously didn't have much interest in learning Spanish. I thought it was a beautiful language, but I knew, or I thought, I guess at the time that I wouldn't be able to make the double R sound. That was extremely intimidating for me. So I was like, nope, I'm not doing it. I'm just going to avoid Spanish. And so after the confidence I had from running a marathon, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to learn Spanish. And so <clears throat> basically I learned via a podcast, um, which was really, really helpful. It's free. It's called Language Transfer or Thinking Method. Um, and it's super, super helpful, a great resource. And then I downloaded an app called Hello Talk. Uh, which is a language exchange app that I highly recommend to anyone learning any language. Um, and I specifically looked for people that lived in Bogota or that lived in Medellin because I read online that their Spanish accents were just very neutral for learners. And so I figured that would be easier for me. Um, and so I met a lot of people on the app. 
<clears throat> and then I ended up coming down to Medellin to visit for about a week. And while I was here, I got a job offer back in Michigan, um, which was um, really exciting and unexpected. And I felt like, okay, well, things are coming together. So I took the offer. Um, and then I came down while I was here for about a week to Medellin. I visited. I met up with a lot of the people I met online um, via the app. And then on my flight home, I was seated next to a woman who basically started asking me, um, you know, what was I doing in Medellin? And I was like, well, I'm just visiting before I start a job. And she started telling me about how her lifelong dream had been to study Mandarin in China. And she had gotten a big scholarship to be able to do so. Um, but ended up not taking it because her boyfriend at the time didn't want to go. And so um, to not mess up her relationship, she decided, okay, I'm not going to accept this. Um, and they ended up getting married. They had kids. Um, eventually they got divorced. And so she was telling me she was in her late 60s, and she was telling me on this flight that, you know, now she has successful businesses and she has the money to travel, but her reality was not uh, the same as it would have been at 23, 24, moving to China. Um, and she talked a lot about really wanting to be involved in a different community. And she was like, at my age now, it's a lot more difficult for me to do that just because people that are my same age, um, you know, are also retired, have their families, have their own communities. Um, and so she basically was just saying that she wished she would have taken the opportunity. She teared up, you know, she was just telling me it was her lifelong regret and that, you know, you have to take advantage of, of your more youthful years. And so I got home and I, you know, got ready to start my new job and basically on my way to work that first day, it just did not feel right to me. And so I called in, I canceled and I booked a one-way flight to Medellin um, with the intention to be able to stay for the duration of the tourist visa. So I worked at the company um, here in Medellin for about eight months and then I found a job from a remote company that, um, you know, all of us, all of the employees are sort of all over the world. Um, and so now it's been about three and a half years that I've been here and now my visa is uh, a partner visa. So it's essentially being in a civil union with my partner. Um, and I've had that visa now for three years, two years, three years, I think three years. Awesome. Thanks, Melissa. So now we're going to present our listeners some background context of why Melissa and I are having this conversation. Uh, so especially due to COVID, uh, we see this more uh, because of this whole working from home culture and just the regulation is inspiring more people to uh, find a more ideal living situation. And many of those people with means are seeking more ideal situations abroad. And this has made these following five countries the hotspots for uh, acts by destination uh, since 2020. And they are Portugal, Thailand, Indonesia, Mexico, and Spain. I was not able to locate any uh, journalists or uh, academic research on the specific impact of this influx has made on local economy and the social lifestyle. But I was able to find a few credible news articles uh, that I want to share with you guys. So this, this whole digital nomad life is often romanticized on this Instagram era. 
of kind of pretty much drinking coconut in this little hub and then just work on a computer and just kind of tanning on the beach all day long. But this is a Vox News article which said that social media tends to flatten this uneasy dynamic and to some the sheer visibility of gringo tourists in one's affordable neighborhoods renders them culpable. But driving away remote workers and tourists isn't a viable solution to Mexico City's housing crisis, nor is it feasible. Long-standing policy decisions by the local and state governments have enabled this wave of short- and long-term visitors, creating a cycle of economic interdependence. And because Mexico, according to Vox News, 17% of GDP relies on tourism. And according to Nomad List, which is one of the biggest nomad database uh, and relocation service website, uh, it witnessed 125% increase in its subscribers located in Mexico City in 2021 alone. And if we look at another popular destination, Bali, Indonesia, uh, this is a news article published by Al Jazeera sharing that a very important and big rice field owned and run by the local, they were built, uh, they were bought and sold uh, and be turned into a strip of cheap bars. Uh, so before it was a quiet lifestyle and now it's filled with, quote, motorbikes, nightclubs and whatnot. Uh, and nightclubs also make noises that impact uh, radars of kilometers of the locals. And this is in the neighborhood of Chenggu, which is used to be the, the so-called hippie neighborhood that's supposed to be quiet and more agricultural. And uh, so who are these nomads? So I went to Nomad the List and because of they have such a large membership, they were able to run some stats. So a average nomads, they are usually in their 30s. So according to this website, it's usually a 33-year-old white, straight, single man with a bachelor's degree who loves coffee and who makes at least 85,000 US dollars. And the top 20 countries of um, the top 20 countries who um, exports the most nomads, the US is number one, uh, um, contributing 50% of the nomad population. And then second being UK, 8%. Third being Russia, 5%. Only four out of these 20 countries are developing countries. And they are Brazil, Ukraine, Poland, and India. Um, and uh, most of these uh, experts, they report that they stay for an average of eight months in a destination and 61% of them are white, 13 being Asian and 12 being Latin um, and 6% being black. So those are just some stats. And if we look at the stats in the Colombian country profile on digital on nomad list, here are just some average cost of living by month that they are quoting. And these numbers are for Medellin, 1,132 US dollars a month. Bogota, number two, most popular, 961. Number three, Cartagena, $1,594. And then there's Minca, 966. Santa Marta is at 1,154. Barranquilla, 857. And the cheapest is Pasto, and that is 728. And for background information, Minimum wage currently in Colombia is 1 million pesos, and that's roughly translates into 230 or 200 US dollars, depending on the inflation. 
So I want to give the floor to Melissa to share your thoughts about, you know, your reactions about these numbers. And you'll find on some blogs that are just sort of promoting moving to Latin America or moving to Bali or moving to these places. Um, but sometimes they can be irresponsible because they're looking for, in some ways, the reaction from people from the United States, from people from the UK, people who are earning dollars and euros, that, wow, this is so cheap, wow, this is so affordable, um, which, of course, promotes people thinking about moving to these places so that they can save money, so that they don't spend as much money, and especially for those that are, you know, earning dollars, of course, they'll be able to save money, even if you probably double or triple those numbers that you just gave, it would be affordable for someone earning dollars or someone earning pesos. Um, but it ends up being somewhat irresponsible because I think there should be a pressure on foreigners to get as close as they can to what is a realistic um, spending amount for a local. Um, and I think it, it goes into the responsibility sometimes will lie just on the government, in my opinion, because mm -hmm. The government that can put regulations and rules in place that will tax foreigners that will tax nomads i think you said eight months is the average stay for yeah. a nomad in these places mm -hmm. to me that is enough time that you should pay taxes where you are that is you are you are actively participating enough in a place that you are well beyond you know the terms of a tourist um, but a lot of times being a nomad is about finding those financial escapes from paying taxes in these places. It's about how long can I stay in a place without paying taxes? How long, you know, what countries are offering these digital nomad visas where I don't pay taxes? Um, which there are quite a few that do require you to pay taxes, but there's also, at least in Medellin, I see it happen all the time in our expat groups. <clears throat> there are foreigners that just overstay their visas and just pay a fine at the airport, and that's that. Um, and so sometimes these pricing guidelines can be I think irresponsible because it it I think alleviates the responsibility that should be on any foreigners back to understand the economy where they are moving if you plan to spend enough time in a place um, that you're you know you're there for three months or more I think you should have some level of responsibility to acclimate yourself to the economy to understand what is affordable and what is not affordable and where you fit in that picture um, <clears throat> rather than just sort of be on the lookout for these places that you can exploit um, in order to make more money and save more money, um, you know, for your own financial gain. Um, because, you know, in the end, the contribution that is going towards the local community is much less than what it should be. Yeah, I completely agree, especially just on... <laughs> Um, that the tax part, once that tourist visa kind of runs out, that really becomes, you know, you're kind of, you're participating in the, in the local economy. What you make is from the local economy, and it's really giving you that, that, that part. And at the same time, really empathize with expats and nomads from all sorts of backgrounds in seek of, you know, better condition of living, and especially this whole tax-free, that, that, that alleviation of that burden. Uh, but at the same time, we really think about, like, us as individuals, when we are really participating in another economy without paying taxes, that's pretty much you are not contributing to the local economy. And, and at the same time, you're only jacking up the local prices. Even here in Bogota, like uh, where I am,
that's not a responsible number, I don't think, to give because what the reaction is and what a lot of times articles about what makes places like Mexico City and Medellin attractive are looking for reactions from Westerners who make dollars and euros in line with like, oh my gosh, that's so cheap. Oh my gosh, that's so affordable. Wow. Without any context that actually that's not cheap. That's not affordable. That's like me going to the United States and telling someone from Switzerland or somewhere where there's a stereotype that they just have more money that, oh, you can move to the Midwest of the United States and live on $2,500 a month when the minimum wage is, that's not what people are necessarily earning. Um, And so it's not a responsible number to give. I think when we talk about, especially on TikTok, the way that things like this get portrayed, before our call, I was looking up, I was looking up influencers in Latin America that speak on gentrification. um, And there are a large number, so I definitely want to draw attention to that, especially in Mexico City, just because it's sort of a um, a situation brewing in Mexico City about gentrification, especially in the last months. But if you look up Move to Mexico on TikTok, all of the content is nomads saying, you've got to come down to Mexico, it's so cheap. And the reality is that in doing that alone, you are potentially raising the prices for locals based on prices that already weren't cheap, um, that already weren't affordable. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a, it, articles like that aren't necessarily realistic, and nor do they communicate what lifestyle you're talking about. Because often what they're talking about is a lifestyle that is similar that is mimicking the lifestyle that this group of people already live where they are, it's not taking into account should you be living that lifestyle in another country? Does that work culturally with where you are? What is the local perspective on this lifestyle? Um, and so, yeah, it can be pretty irresponsible. Thank you. All right. Actions that come with having a contract, a lot of experts will recommend you go straight to owners. And I think maybe that makes sense if you are a nomad. Maybe that makes sense if you're here for a limited amount of time. But Colombia is our home. Medellin is our base. We don't have plans to... I've never been a nomad. Uh, we don't have plans to move anywhere. Even within Colombia, we want to stay exactly where we're, where we're at. Um, and so we'd go to these agencies. They would ask about earnings. Um, and so I would explain, oh, well, I work for a company in the United States. But... With this additional context, I have my earnings verified by an accountant in Colombia because when I pay taxes in Colombia, because if you are physically in Colombia for more than 180 days and you pass the earnings amount that is sort of like their minimum earnings that you need to have in order to declare rent, in order to pay rent, in order to pay taxes, um, then you have to do so. And it, it doesn't matter if your earnings are in pesos, are in dollars, are in euros, you need to pay tax on that income if it was earned while you were physically in Colombia for more than 180 days. And so every year I have to have my earnings verified by my accountant so that I can pay taxes. And so in that way, Colombia as a government recognizes foreign earnings as something that need to be taxed. But if I am a foreigner looking to get an apartment, that income is no longer recognized. And so 
And that is with offering to, in the contract, pay the first six months up front, pay a year up front. Um, and it's still not possible. And so what ends up happening for most foreigners, the way that we ended up getting our apartment is that <clears throat> my partner was a co-signer and his cousin's dad was a co-signer. And the agency that we went with was actually very close friends with his cousin's dad. And so if we wouldn't have had what is in Spanish called Rosca, if we wouldn't have had these connections, we wouldn't have been in a position to be able to get an apartment. And our apartment, we pay $1,400,000 a month, which is like a nice apartment in Colombia. Um, right now, we found out we're going to have to leave our apartment in October. The owner needs it back. And we started the search for new apartments. <clears throat> for context, we moved into this apartment in two years ago. Or it would be We'd be hitting our third renewal of the contract this October. And the rent's gone up, I think, 100000 maybe like 70000 pesos since that time in the rest so now that we're looking again finding an apartment in that price range is absolutely impossible um of like the same size same location impossible we saw an apartment a building another apartment in a building opened up um and so we went up and looked at it and they were asking for two million pesos for the same apartment the same exact apartment. And the difference being, when we moved into this apartment, it was to, it was Parece not. it was completely new, no one had lived here before, and the apartment, four floors up, was extremely damaged. The people who lived there, it seems like were partying a lot, or were smoking, or it was damaged, and they were asking for 600,000 pesos more per month. Um, and so what will end up happening to foreigners, because it's so difficult to get a lease if you have no Colombian connection, is, and this is regardless of if you have a cellula, if you have a visa, it doesn't matter. As long as your earnings are not in pesos, it's going to be impossible. They'll go to Airbnb. And Airbnb prices in Medellin are absolutely insane. Um, I was looking at it before we got on this call. And our apartment is three bedrooms, two bathrooms. I think it ends up being like, I would guess around 70 squared meters um it's not a huge apartment but we have three bedrooms so we've got an office we've got a guest bedroom where chris's cousin stays and then our bedroom and these airbnbs will be studio apartments charging what in pesos would be like four million pesos which is an it's absurd but i'm also extremely empathetic of foreigners that find themselves in that situation because if you are trying to be here for long enough term that you need furniture, that you need a place that has good Wi-Fi, that you want a place in a, in a, in a location that you, that you know somewhat, you end up having to pay these prices in Airbnb because you may not be here. You may not want to stay here for more than a year. And so you're not going to buy furniture like I have because I plan to stay. You're not going to be in a situation where um, <clears throat> you will um, – be able to plant your roots here and think of it as your home. And so your options end up being Airbnb. And now there are entire buildings in Poblao that are just Airbnb buildings. They're just Airbnbs and they're overpriced. Um, they're overpriced. They're not regulated. Um, and you know, they just, they're, they're increasing right rent prices, of course, for locals. Um, in the time since I've been here, when I first moved here and looked at apartments, when I decided I was going to come back before I ended up moving with Chris's family, 
apartments for like a million two hundred thousand pesos and like the nicest apartments in Puebla were maybe close to three million mm-hmm. now you'll see <clears throat> you'll see luxury apartments for five million six million ten million fifteen million pesos a month and that's not realistic even for wealthy Colombians um like I, I there's no way that a Colombian would pay that price and so in our case we're lucky to have an apartment, but I'm also empathetic of foreigners because sometimes I'll talk to expats or people who want to even move here permanently who will say, well, I really want to be responsible about not going through Airbnb because I know that Airbnb causes X, Y, or Z problem. And, and that's not even the case with Airbnb everywhere. When Airbnb is regulated in the way that it should be, it's not necessarily a problem, but when it's unregulated, it becomes sort of a disaster. And so those foreigners will say, well, I, I don't want to go through Airbnb because I don't want to gentrify. I don't want to make these spaces, um, you know, just for people like me. But what is their other option when, if they want to stay here for a longer term, um, if they want to <clears throat> be here for a longer period of time, the only thing that is left for them is to file buy an apartment. Um, which is what a lot of retired folks will do here is just buy a place and they'll live there and that's that. Um, but yeah, I think our apartment journey is sort of a good insight into how complex the issue is. And I think how the lack of government intervention in these situations leads to sort of local people getting affected in a negative way. Yeah, I have two quick questions for you. One is, so pretty much your current rent is a little over 300 US dollars, just for people who use dollars. And the, the, the apartment nearby that charges 4 million, that's a little over 1,000 US dollars, correct? And can you just tell us more about, you know, where does the, in terms, so where, where do this 300 versus 1,000 stand on the managing market at the moment? What's the medium and... So I would say... Our apartment is a, it's not luxury by a nomad standards. It's not a luxury apartment by someone from Europe standards. It is a, it's a nice apartment um, that, like I said, was, we were estrenando. We were the first people that were living here, so no one else had lived here. Um, It's, it's a nice building and a nice apartment in a, in a nice area of Medellin. We don't live in Poblado. I wouldn't be interested in living in Poblado. Um, we live in an area of the city called Sabaneta, which is a little bit more south of, of Poblado. Um, the median, I would say, just like looking for apartments right now, <clears throat> through, we're going to try to stick with our same agency because, of course, it was so difficult to get an agency that would work with us that now we have trust with them. I would say... For this same sort of apartment, it's probably around a million seven hundred now, a million eight hundred now. Um, and if I'm being completely honest, that's still with certain changes that are different. So most apartments in Colombia won't come with an oven. We have an oven in our apartment. Um, <clears throat> we won't find an apartment in that price range likely with an oven. And if it has an oven, it might not have three bedrooms. It might only have two bedrooms. Um, and so I think I would say the median range that I'm seeing at least looking is around that million six hundred thousand. Um, and you can find cheaper, you can find like a million two hundred thousand. 
<laughs> but you are going from, we live in Estrato Cuatro, so we're in like that range. You can find apartments, of course, that are like Estrato Dos, Estrato Tres, but those are going to be um, smaller. You're going to be dealing with a smaller apartment. You're definitely not going to be estrenando. And you aren't going to have certain things that we really love about our building. So we like that we have um, vigilantes. We like that we have um, a gym in our building. There's like a pool. All of that stuff, which is definitely luxury in Colombia. It's a luxury to have those sorts of things. You won't be able to find for a million four hundred, which is what we pay right now. And when we were looking two years ago, we saw a few apartments that were like a million two hundred, a million three hundred a million one hundred and that was like a safe range for us we felt comfortable paying that um but yeah now you'll see a lot of apartments that are two million five hundred two million six hundred um and i can't believe it i don't know how anyone i don't know how anyone is paying that um because it's not that the you're not only dealing with the fact that the minimum wage hasn't gone up you're dealing with the fact that the dollar has gone up, which negatively affects everyone here. That's not a positive. Of course, it's potentially a positive for people that are earning dollars, but even then, it, it, it leads to things like this. It leads to apartment costs going up. It leads to costs going up anyways, um, you know, and for the people around you, for your community that you should have if you live here. Um, it's not a positive. Yeah, absolutely, especially the currency part. My last time uh, being in Colombia was 2019, and back then I remember the exchange rate was like $1 to maybe 26-ish, 100 pesos, uh, somewhere around that. And then it jumped to 1 to 4,000 last week. And then when I checked this morning, it's 1 to 4,300. Uh, so it really fluctuates by the daily. Um, and um, and just before I go to the next point, I want to just ask you just to confirm. So let's say if you guys didn't have that actual connection with the agency, what would be your alternative? We probably would have stayed with Chris's family. We probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have moved out. I wouldn't have felt, <clears throat> there's like layers to it. I wouldn't have felt comfortable contributing to what we're talking about now, living in an Airbnb. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have felt like it was an ethical decision, a moral decision. And also feeling very integrated in Colombian understanding of prices, I wouldn't pay that. Even if we took out of the conversation concerns over not gentrifying, concerns over not um, contributing in a negative way to where you are, I wouldn't pay that because that sounds crazy. Just like wherever um, you know your hometown is, if you went back to your hometown and you heard they were charging three or four times than what you know it's worth, you wouldn't move there because that just seems unnecessary. Even if you have money to do it, it just seems like a silly decision. So we probably would have stayed <clears throat> with his family um, and just kept living with his family. Um, and, I mean, we moved out with his family because it seemed like an important step in our relationship. And it was also, there was a lot of cultural um, differences that weren't, like, causing problems but were causing for me um, like a level of emotional stress that I, I felt like I needed some space, <laughs> especially because this wasn't just regular times. This was quarantine. So it was like constant. We were in this environment. Um, but no, I love this family. This family's amazing. Um, 
but yeah, if, if, if it wouldn't have worked out that way, we would have stuck it out. We would have just stuck it out. Yeah, so I definitely respect your decision to not to participate in this Airbnb movement. And I also recognize that, especially just, just consuming and learning more on TikTok, part of traveling and relocating to a different country really is recognize our privilege. And, and I think especially when we go to a country that does not use a very strong currency, like euros, like the US dollars, it's crucially important to recognize the power gap, the power difference in our spending powers. Um, so when we see, you know, especially just according to US standards, um, all of the, the rental prices are nomadless. This sounds very fair. It almost sounds like a, like, it almost sounds like a dream. And what, were, what were you were talking about, that, you know, $4,000 studio, maybe that's, I mean, we're a New Yorker. That's very normal because that's the average. That 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 would even be a catch in Midtown Manhattan. Right. Um. And even just in my daily spending. So I'm very fortunate that like my this like my trip this time is sponsored by a foundation to support my research. So I have a daily budget, and I would see that. And right now, uh, and because I think this also so touch on like an earlier point that you shared with me in when we talk in private, just the content that we consume online, because the majority of the online contents about you know like this nomad life and also about this t- very top popular act by destination is to attack these countries to the name of cheap even like being cheap is almost like their reputation is almost like their only identity and that is very dismissive that's very disrespectful for the local people because humans are not cheap especially when i think on my TikTok video a guy was sharing that you know like when he was passing by on on the streets in india like this guy bargained something from one like one dollar and thirty cents to thirty cents. Maybe this guy was just doing it maybe out of fun just to try or whatever that, that he was doing. But that one US dollar means so much for that vendor um in, in this person's daily income. And even just now, like because since now I'm trying to organize some offline events and really do not want the money to be the barrier to stop people from coming. Um, and so pretty much now, like in this very nice area that I'm living in, and this also ties back, ties back into that negative um, reputation. So to be reimbursed, to use the scholarship or grant that I got, I could only book hotels through their portal, and their portal only deems certain hotels as good, only deems certain areas as safe. And even you know, I've been here for a little over a month, and. And, and still, Bogota and Colombia is ranked on level three. So there are only four levels on the advisory. Four being is in the war zone, do not go. And Colombia has always been in number three. And I constantly get these different kind of notifications, alarms or whatever from this kind of uh, app. And that is why I have to stay in the area I am. Um, and, but even within the limited options, I tried to not to only stay at chain hotels, especially foreign chain hotels. I tried to just support Colombian local, mainly boutique. Um, but this time I wasn't able to do that. Um, and But what I also recognize is that even in a very expensive area like this, pretty much I spent 14 US dollars for a very nice meal. But that is, I want to say maybe four times, sometimes even five times as a normal Colombian dish that if you just visit a restaurant that's run by the locals who give you the same kind of food, fresh cooked, fresh juice, very lovely service, open kitchen. Um, yeah. So I think, and I think, and I know that you also have a similar story to share about just spending power, just how to be more mindful in our life abroad. 
I think it's even another really good example here is grocery stores. So I'm sure in Bogota you have Esito, you mm-hmm. have Caruja, you have all of all of these like chain grocery stores that I know sometimes people in, in the United States have a perception of what a grocery store looks like and what it is and where you should go. And it looks more comfortable for a foreigner. Um, it feels like a more comfortable store. It's got like a Walmart feel to it or it's got, you know, a supermarket sort of feel to it. Um, I think something as simple as like, don't buy your groceries there. They're very known to be overpriced, expensive, and not always the freshest or the best. Um, for us, we'll go to we'll go to Karuja, for example, to get like dill, like spices that are difficult to buy in just a local store, uh, just because they're not commonly used herbs or spices. Um, but would I ever buy fruit or meat in in Karuja? No, never in my life would I do that. It's it's way too expensive. You're better going to like local butchers. You're better going to you know your sort of your local little markets where they sell fruit or they sell vegetables um and so i think a huge part of the experience of living in um, another country or visiting another country even as a tourist it applies to being a tourist too but i think the responsibility is greater if you're going to be in a place for longer than a month if you're trying to stay in a place for a while is not putting your comfort over your responsibility to contribute to the local economy. So I know that as a traveler, because I think we all done it, you may see a small stand where you could buy something. Um, and then you may see a familiar looking grocery store. And you may go to the grocery store because you're like, well, I don't even know how to order. I'm not sure how I would do this with that stand. I will, it'll just be easier this way. And I think it's really important if you're trying to make small improvements as a nomad or as an expat to really push yourself outside of that comfort zone um, and prioritize, <laughs> of course, like prioritize your safety. But as we were talking about like consumption of media, I think certain places have a perception of, of safety uh, or lack thereof that is not realistic or even painting a picture of of what safety looks like in other places or what danger looks like in other places and so you buying fruit from a fruit stand is not the kind of danger that you think it is it's more about comfort than it is about danger so I think my biggest thing would be to put yourself out of your comfort zone for the sake of being a responsible resident where you are Um, and so I think that's a big one I also when I moved here, because I was so sad on learning Spanish, I didn't make any expat friends. I made an effort to avoid other expats, and not in some way that was like, oh, I'm superior to expats because I'm involving myself with Colombians or I'm trying to be more local. Um, but because I knew that if I was involving myself in a community that was just expats and I was making that my main community before I spoke Spanish the odds that I would get deeply involved in Colombian community were slim because I would good, I was going to have this community that was English speaking, that was culturally on the same page as me, that was, uh, you know, familiar or was perceiving the things around us in the same way. And so I think that's a big one is like, just because you're a nomad or because you're an expat or because you're living in another country doesn't mean you should only hang out with people that look like you or speak your language or um, have the same sort of cultural literacy that you do. And I think it is, again, it's about comfort over being a responsible resident. 
Um, because part of the problem with places like Tulum or Mexico City or Bali are that these communities of expats, it's not a single expat that is, you know, moving the market in this way. It's the community of expats creating a demand for certain establishments. I was watching, there's, um, <clears throat> I think I mentioned, if you look up, um, like if you look up gentrification in Mexico, if you look up gentrification in Mexico on TikTok, there are so many Mexicans who are speaking out about their perspective on it and about the dangers of gentrification. And so many areas of Mexico City or of these cities have become yoga studio places, have become uh, cafes with um, acai bowls where, you know, getting a coffee is extremely expensive and the idea is that you're going to hang out there all day on your, on your computer and work remote. And I think <clears throat> there is a, like you said, a privilege that needs to be recognized that when you do move as a community, you are creating a demand. Um, I found that not creating that expat community, one, led me to learning the language much faster. It gave me that cultural literacy much faster. It gave me, my best friends here are Colombian. I don't have any close friends that are foreigners in, in Colombia. Um, and I think there is something to be said for why are you a nomad? Why are you an expat? And if your answer which, like I said, that, that if you look up move to Mexico, most people, when they make this list, cost of living is number one. Cost of living is the reason that they're doing this. And I think that's not enough. I think if you're choosing to live in another place, your number one should be related to community. It should be related to this is where you want to have community, and it can't be an expat community um, because... It, it just doesn't it doesn't lead to I think positive changes in the environment that you're in um, but yeah I think for me the biggest the biggest factor is like my number one reason for being in Colombia is not cost of living my number one reason for being in Colombia is because my partner's Colombian and so his family is Colombian and so our roots are Colombian um, and because it's not simple for us to go to the US if we wanted to Chris has been rejected for a tourist visa twice um, even getting, you can't even go through the U.S. on a layover without a visa. You have to have a transit visa as a Colombian just to pass through the airport. Um, and so my number one reason for being in Colombia is because of my partner, because this is where we've established our roots. This is where we've grown as a couple. Um, and because my friends are here, because, <clears throat> because, you know, people I care about are here. And I don't think it's a responsible decision to move to a place to create a bubble away from locals. Um, locals should be a huge part of the reason you are in a place, not because of cost of living and because you've created a bubble where you can almost reenact the same life you had in your home country, but for much cheaper um, because it's irresponsible. And I don't think it's, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think it's fulfilling long-term. I think it's great for you to make a TikTok and say, look how much money I'm saving in this cheap place but none of them talk about the long-term reality of, like, if your entire community is also a group of people who are moving all the time, what actual sense of community do you have anywhere? Is your sense of community online? Is your sense of community with a group of people that is always moving and so you are always changing the sense of community? At least for me, that's what's not attractive about an expat lifestyle in a nomadic way. Um, I want to be in a place, I wouldn't move to a country just because it's affordable, because I've lived the experience here of having <clears throat> these cultural 
differences that make it a real growing experience for you to realize if the place is right for you or not. And I think in some ways expats are avoiding that because they're creating these bubbles. Well said, well said. I, I really have no more to, to add. And that really resonated what you shared about, you know, just a new, pretty much it's about recreating expats home country in the new destination, especially places like Tulum, right? Especially when we think of, when we think of Tulum, it's, all, it's almost a new capital for spirituality, for some alternative health. And Bali is now the yoga heaven. You want to like learn some guest yoga teacher training for like third of the price to get it. In the US, you can definitely fly to Bali. And exactly like experts in this kind of destinations, they stick to each other. They work in co-work uh, spaces and they have this, this kind of like shared community. But it's all this kind of, yeah, sure, you can definitely be, be drawn because you're all, no, like you're all living this very nomadic kind of life um, but but you touched on a very very sobering point that what kind of community is it when it just comes and goes and when you really never made an effort to contribute to the real places that you are in the locals are not just a housekeeping staff the locals are not just the chef and they are not just someone you can just bargain from one dollar to fifty cents um, like these are people who you know just just because they are living in a country practicing weaker currencies it has nothing to do with their worth as human um so thank you so much for sharing your your honest perspective and just how you really try to practice that respect and mindfulness in your life so since we're approaching the end of our i think one thing that's really important too that you just reminded me of that i think some people could argue or would bring up in these conversations is that oh hey but when immigrants go to the united states for example um, why don't those immigrants have the same pressure to assimilate in the same way? In the same way, why do Chinatowns exist? Why do Mexican towns exist? Why are these areas of cities um, not a problem? If you're saying that like these expat bubbles are a problem, and I think it is important to bring up just to clarify the difference in these situations because they're so different. I think the first thing is that. It's normal to want community that's familiar to you. So I don't think it's a negative to make friends with expats. Even though I'm saying I took that approach, that's because I wanted to make community in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to make community with people that were going to be in Colombia. Um, and so I definitely have friends that are foreigners. They're usually also partners with Colombians. They're married to Colombians. They live in Colombia. They've been living in Colombia. So I don't think it's a negative to feel a need to have community that is somewhat familiar to to you. I think that is a normal thing when you go anywhere is that you will feel safe. I mean, I think the easiest example is as a woman, I think most girls were told as girls that if you get lost and you need help, find another woman. Go find another another older woman who can help you or go find another mom that can help you. Um, and so it's normal to find what looks like us to feel safe. <clears throat> I think there's a clear difference between the type of discomfort that you feel as an expat versus the type of discomfort that immigrants to places like the United States have historically and still currently feel. Because one of those discomforts is, oh, this place is unfamiliar to me. And the other discomfort is I am not welcome here. Mm -hmm. And those are two very different kinds of discomforts. I've never felt unwelcome 
in Medellin as a foreigner. If anything, people are excited that, oh, wow, that's so cool that you're in Colombia. Wow, that's so fun. <clears throat> Whereas an immigrant's experience is, of course, going to be a reflection of the lack of privilege they have when they arrive to the United States. And so the existence of places like Chinatowns is obviously a response to the fact that these groups of people were not welcomed into other areas of the city. These groups of people were not welcomed even when it comes to like processes like going to Secretary of State in the same way that I don't have to deal with that when I go to the immigration office here. <clears throat> and so I think that's the first point. I think the second point is that it's not a bad thing to create community when it is long-lasting and when it is permanent and when you are fully contributing. The big problem with these expat communities are that they are temporary. They are they are not. Sometimes I'll have people ask what I miss about living in the U.S. And one of the biggest things I miss about the U.S. is the diversity of high-quality food that we have <clears throat> in the United States. I could go to a Kenyan restaurant one day. I could go to a Chinese restaurant one day. I could go to a Korean restaurant. I could go to restaurants that represent cultures and communities from all over the world in a way that I just can't in Medellin. And the reason for that is because in Medellin, you don't have immigrants from all of those countries. Immigrants are what bring the kinds of communities that I think are really worth celebrating in different countries. And I don't think that because someone comes from the United States, they can't create a worthwhile and positive community in another country just because of their privilege. But I think if you're not doing it in a conscious way and you're making a temporary community, it's not a positive thing for locals because it's not anything that benefits them. Um, and it's also the last point I'll, I'll bring up on this is that expat communities are always in areas of the city where they are going to dominate what is there. Areas like Chinatowns are not in Manhattan. They're not in areas of the city displacing other people um and so i think it's very very important to distinguish those two because i know that a lot of people could have that thought that like well wait a minute immigrants in the united states they're not learning english fast enough they're not doing these things so why do expats have this pressure um and that goes back to what you mentioned about privilege that my ability to move to colombia and learn spanish is not an easy thing but I don't have to deal with walking around and speaking English and someone coming up to me and saying, hey, you're in Colombia, speak Spanish. Um, I don't have to get treated like I'm dumb because I don't speak Spanish. Um, I don't have to um, I don't have to deal with the fact that my ability economically to taking a Spanish class if I wanted <clears throat> isn't going to be as difficult, of course, as it would be for someone arriving to the U.S. to try to gather the resources to learn English. Um, so I think it's really important because I feel very um, protective of the experience that I know, for example, Chris would have if he went to the U.S. to do the same thing I've done here um, because I know it wouldn't be the same and it wouldn't be... My journey was difficult, but my journey was difficult in the way that running a marathon is difficult. That, oh, that's strenuous. Oh, that's a lot of activity. But my marathon did not include you know, people treating me poorly. My marathon did not include me having to hurdle obstacles um, that didn't have anything to do with running, um, you know, to sort of give that metaphor. So I think it's really important to distinguish those two experiences based on what you said about privilege, which is so important. 
Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to end our our episode here. And thank you so much for just blending in honesty and the human compassion in this because it really it really takes time. It really takes experience of truly living abroad, living in a different country, to overcome that discomfort and be able to just coexist uh, with that discomfort, uh, to recognize. Um, just our human responsibility to help each other um, and also just practicing more gratitude to the, 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 the new city that we now call home, right? Yes, and so thank you so much, Melissa, for your time today. Thank you so much for giving me a home between your ears. I strive to create content that encourages you to practice courage and authenticity to belong truthfully wherever you are. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd so appreciate it if you could leave me a five-star review and feedback. Take it to social media at Your Best Deal Abroad on Instagram and TikTok so I can thank you personally. And join my free Telegram community pinned on my TikTok so we can support each other on our journey home. Remember, border is only where our expansion begins and bond never ends. Celebrate yourself until we meet in the next one.